Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. My name's Chad Almy. I'm on the admin team, and I preach occasionally to give David a break. All right, we are going to jump in, pick up where we left off in 1 Peter 1. If you remember last week, we really talked about the gospel and that idea of Christ's blood is sufficient um, for our salvation and that our hope needs to be in it and only it. Uh, That hope David defined last week as a confident expectation. He contrasted that from how we kind of talk about hope sometimes casually where it's, I hope I win the lottery, right? Saying something that's unlikely to happen, but that we're really sort of wishing for. The hope that we see in the Bible and that we see in 1 Peter is an expectant confidence, something that we know we can count on. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13. I'm actually going to read 13 all the way through uh, the end of chapter 1, and then we'll go back and, and kind of go through verse by verse. So verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So before the 9 a.m. service, a friend and mentor said, how long does it take to read through all of 1 Peter? Not very long. He said about 18 minutes was apparently he timed himself. And he said, so how many times are we all going to read through this as the entire book as, as we're going through this sermon series? It's like we should be reading it through it multiple times a week. And I, I think that's good advice. But I would also encourage you to potentially do the opposite, which is, If there are verses in there that prove challenging or a little thorny, like I think we have today, feel free to also really camp out there and consult other resources, commentaries, dig deep, cross-reference in other parts of the Bible, and and feel free to spend weeks on one verse. I think you can find a lot of fruit from that. All right, so going back to the beginning of our passage, verse 13, therefore, so meaning referring back to what we talked about last week, because of that gospel of salvation through Christ's blood. Because of that, out of gratitude for that, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. 
That hopefully is a really important phrase as we get into the meat of the passage below. Again, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is complete. It is our only source of hope. And as, you, as we go through the rest of the passage, keep that at the forefront of your mind. I'm going to remind as we go through, but the only thing that saves us is Christ's blood. It is a free gift. We can't earn it. We can't demand it. All we can do is accept it. We see being obedient children, out of that gratitude because of our salvation, we should obey God, our Heavenly Father, not conforming to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. We're going to see that again in this passage where it's contrasting our new life in Christ versus the old ways of life uh, of the world. And then this idea of holiness in verse 15, be holy because I am holy. Our Heavenly Father is holy. He's set apart. He's perfect. He's different from this world and the ideology of this world. And so we're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. And that theme's going to go throughout as well. Now, verse 17, I really think, is the key verse in this passage to understanding the rest of it. And it's a hard verse. So we're going to spend some time on it. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So since, or because, you call on, you worship a father, God, who judges all of us impartially, because of that, because we worship a God who's going to judge us one day, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So we see again that idea of we're strangers. We're not of the world. We're set apart. We should be different. And then we're called to live in reverent fear. And this is, this is tricky, right? How does it make sense that we're supposed to fear a loving God, a God who loves us perfectly, who loves us more than we could love anyone else or than anyone else loves us, a God who loves us unconditionally, a God who loved us so much that he died for us? How and why are we called to fear that God? So the New Testament, the earliest manuscripts we have of it, written in Greek. And the word for fear in Greek that is used here and in virtually every other place we see fear in the New Testament is phobio. And that's, that word is very similar to our version of fear in the English language, where it can mean a lot of different things. Um, everything from, you know, terror and, and, and fear of immediate death or torture to, you know, respect and awe and reverence to sort of general nervousness and, and uh, anxiety. <laughs> the Old Testament is in Hebrew, and Hebrew has lots of words for fear. So, Fear of the Lord appears over 300 times in the Bible. So it's something we've got to get a grasp on. It's, it's, it's everywhere. And, and it's, it's hard to tackle. And so we need to understand what type of fear are we talking about here. And, and we don't know directly. It's not as helpful as the Old Testament where you really can, by the word itself, distinguish. I think there's two versions of fear that are relevant to this verse. 
The first, and I'm going to talk about it briefly because I don't think it has as much application for us today, but I, but I think it is definitely there, and so we need to mention it, is the sort of existential terror of damnation, where we're talking about our salvation on the line, right? We're a father who judges. We're, we really are talking about on our judgment day, how is God going to judge us? And we see fear throughout the Bible and repeatedly in the New Testament of damnation as a motivating factor. Now, again, the only way that we're saved is by the blood of Jesus, and we can take full confidence that when we make that sincere heart decision to follow Jesus, that we are saved. But we do see in the New Testament several examples Matthew 7, Luke 13, the parable of the sower, all where there's some evidence that someone calls out in the name of Jesus but doesn't receive eternal life. And, and what is that about? Well, I think it's, it, you see it's where it wasn't a sincere heart conviction, right? If, if we have an idea of salvation as just one time, at some point we sort of said flippantly or on a whim, yes, Jesus saved me, but then don't change anything about our lives, don't seek a relationship with God, don't read the word and, and, and try to live in obedience by it. If there is no fruit or evidence whatsoever of our salvation, then there should be cause for concern and, and fear. Now, that is not to say that we don't all sin every day. We don't all screw up big time. We don't have periods of doubt. We don't have periods where we feel like we don't hear from God. We've talked about those when we, when we did the valley of the shadow of death, right? That's all real, and it is distinct from if there wasn't really a true heart decision to follow Jesus, right? When, when we think about salvation, and, and, and the New Testament talks about salvation, it's entering into a relationship with Jesus. It's following, it's seeking. And I think, look, simple fact that all of us are in this room this morning shows evidence of that, shows fruit of that, right? We can't seek God unless he sought us first. And, and so the fact that everyone's here trying to dig into his word uh, and engage with it is a great sign. Um, so that's all I want to say about that, but I think I, I needed to mention it. Where we're going to spend a lot of our time as it relates to fear and what I think really unlocks the rest of the passage is this bucket of fear that is the most common type of fear mentioned in the Bible, which is reverence of, or awe, such deep respect for God that we are not only obedient, but we recognize him as the Lord of our lives in a very real and tangible way. You know, that type of fear, the awe and reverence, we struggle with, whereas the other type of fear, it may be that no one in, in this room has fear of, of their salvation because they know they're covered by Jesus' sacrifice and that love. A lot of us, if not all of us, probably struggle with, do we really have a fear of his awe? Do we revere God, right? Is, is it something that leads us to obedience? And, and I think we're kind of put uh, at a disadvantage by the way we do church, by the way we do Christianity in 21st century America. I mean, look at our space, right? It's a converted office space. There used to be cubes here everywhere. And we have a PowerPoint to help unpack messages. And we do amplified modern music. None of that is bad. In fact, 
we think it's good. That's why we do it here, right? But it can have a cost, which is reverence. We know God ordained for us to be here. Look at the, the blessing and, and the finance report. And we think PowerPoints are helpful to unpacking the messages. And, and who doesn't feel blessed by Bo and the worship team's music? But it's a far cry from the cathedrals in Western Europe where you have 100-foot vaulted ceilings and stained glass, and there's a liturgy that goes back hundreds if not thousands of years where you're doing the same chants and songs. It's easier in that context to have a reverence, to have an awe of God than it is for us. And I think the, the consequence of that is we get really casual in our relationship with God. So we're going to put pictures up of sometimes sort of the ditch we go to, which is Jesus is my homeboy, right? He's just my buddy. I like that action figure because it looks like the big Lebowski, right? The dude abides, so Jesus abides, and he's just here to hang out and support everything I do no matter what, right? It's that friend who, you know what, it's laughs at you when, you know, you make terrible decisions, when you do things that you regret and that are sin. It's no big deal. And I think we can fall into the trap of thinking of Jesus and God that way, that he's just sort of along for the ride. And, and when we do that, we redefine who God is. God isn't the God defined by truth in scripture. God is whoever we want him to be, whatever's convenient, whatever feels good. And we should be scared of that. And, 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 and we're going to talk in a minute about why, but what is, what is the relationship? What is a good picture of, of who God should be? And I think it's the one that we constantly see over and over again in scripture, and it's the loving father, right? It's not a distant judge who's just judging us and hurling consequences at us without care or love, but it's also not a permissive father who's not disciplining us and who's not trying to teach us what's good and what's best. You know, we, we all have times when we need to hear hard things from people whom we've given authority in our lives, whether that's a parent or a boss or a spouse even. Um, right after we got engaged, A.B., who's now my wife, looked over at me and, and she said, uh, have you ever tried on a pair of jeans before you bought them? And uh, I thought that was an absurd question. Why would I try on a pair of jeans? The size is on the back, right? You just see your size and you grab it. And so I said, no, why? And, and she said, because they look terrible. And, 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 uh, and I said, what, what do you mean they look terrible? They're jeans. And she's like, well, you know, they, they don't fit. Like you have a, a, a waist size that's like four sizes too big. And I'd played to that point football most of my life. So I had to account for 30 pound swings, you know, in, in short or, order. That's what a belt's for. Um, and she said, and they're always like that straight leg that just is, it looks terrible. It's like 20 years ago. And so I said, what, what do you want me to wear, skinny jeans? And she's like, uh, the rest of the world just calls those jeans now. Like nobody... Uh, and your, your shirts are like three sizes too big. And, uh, and so I called my buddy Ben, uh, who'd been one of my best friends since middle school. And I'd always seen him as kind of a fashion forward kind of guy because he shopped at Banana Republic. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, Ben, like AB just killed me on my clothes and like how bad my fashion is. And, and I was like, can you believe that? And he's like, yeah, it's terrible. It's always been terrible. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
And he said, but you know what? Fashion comes around and it's been so bad for so long that you may not want to reinvest because it, it may meet you where you're at eventually. Um, and so we'll see if that happens. I'm, I'm waiting for the uh, pleated khaki shorts to come back. Uh, I mean, it's, if you want to wear shorts, but you need to dress it up a little bit, that's it. There's a gap right now um, that I'm waiting to be filled. But that was, in all seriousness, a hard thing to hear that like my entire life I dressed terrible and had no idea. And no one had told me that, right? And so AB, in love, used her authority as my fiance to, to finally break that to me and help me. She got, me, got Ben to take me to the Banana Republic and uh, I've never looked back. But uh, sometimes we need that. It's hard, right? He, obeying God and letting the word rebuke us and correct us can be hard. We don't want to change the things that are comfortable. We don't want to change the things that we love doing that uh, we think we find happiness and joy. And, and if scripture says that we need to change, then we need to trust and we need to change. Last thing on verse 17. So this idea of strangers or sojourners, as David has, has referred to it throughout, what does that mean? John and Paul talk about it throughout the New Testament. I think it's best summed up by this idea of being in the world, but not of it. It's, it's really important that we understand this isn't our home. Heaven is. And so we should be strangers. We shouldn't conform to all the things that motivate and animate this world because our true home, we're going to be in soon. There's a great quote that C.S. Lewis has that I think is, is appropriate here. It says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We should feel like that sometimes. If we're really obeying God, we're motivated by this reverent fear to take his word seriously, to take his relationship, his authority over us seriously, then we should at times feel like strangers here. Okay, what happens if we don't? So here we go on to verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This empty way of life, that's what happens. If we don't allow fear, again, awe and reverence, to cause us to take God's word seriously and seek his discipline, then we end up trapped in that empty way of life that we were in before we were saved. I think the best expression of this is in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon talks about all the things he tried to bring happiness, to bring meaning to life. So he talks about wealth, right? He became the wealthiest person in the ancient Near World with gold and silver and all kinds of exotic things. And what's the conclusion he comes to? Meaninglessness. It's all meaningless. And then he tried romantic and sexual love, had wives and harem, and, and as he said, he sort of drank deeply from that. Meaningless. Then accomplishment, right? It, it lists all the things that he was able to do to achieve. Israel at the time was, if not the most powerful, one of the most powerful kingdoms in the ancient Near East. And he had all these public works, gardens and 
parks and infrastructure, all these buildings and statues. And again, the conclusion he comes to is meaningless. Even wisdom, the wisdom that Solomon is known for, if it's an end of itself, if it's wisdom for the sake of exalting himself and for, for wisdom for the sake of wisdom and not to draw him closer to God, even that is meaningless. That's this empty way of life that we all probably have some version of when we realize we're pursuing these other ends because they can't satisfy ultimately. It's the definition of lust. Anything that we put our hope and our desires in that cannot fulfill will end up lusting after. And and God is the only thing that ultimately can can fill us, can meet those desires, can meet those needs. You also see our adoption as sons and daughters. What was it bought with? The blood of the lamb. And he contrasts that. Peter contrasts that with silver and gold that back in his day when he wrote it would have been how most religions worked, right? You justified yourself. You got in right relation with God by going to whatever temple and and paying money. I think it also has a metaphor for today, right? What do we often do? It's materialism. It's getting ahead. It's, It's using money, material things to distract us, to, to put our faith in. And, and how do we fall into this trap of going so quickly back to this empty life? I think it's, it's here. It's a reverence problem. We don't have the fear of the Lord that leads to obedience. And I think about this. So you guys know Russell Marshall. He's uh, the pastor of Dwell. And I've heard him before talk about this prayer walk he was on. And he asked God, he said, God, who am I? Who are you to me? Who are you, God, to me as I sit here and walk and pray? And he felt like God said to him, a king of a distant realm. And you think about that. It's probably how we think of President Xi in China or Putin in Russia. They have no authority over our lives. We're aware of them. And it might be interesting to talk about them, maybe even intellectually uh, stimulating to study them, might be entertaining, but they definitely don't have authority over our lives and they definitely don't impact the way that we live our lives. And so he said, God, who do you want to be in my life? He said, the father of the house. He felt like God said the father of the house, right? Where there's no escaping his presence to be constantly reminded of it and the authority he has over us and the fact that his discipline is out of love and is good for us. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's only when we have that reverence and that awe that we can become obedient, we can start to understand his ways and we can start to gain wisdom. Okay, we'll keep going. Verses 20 and 21, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So last times, right? Jesus's death and resurrection was the beginning of of the last times, the end times that will be complete when he comes back and, and God's kingdom will then reign forever. 
Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Again, only in one thing, the sufficiency of the blood of Christ's sacrifice. It's the only thing that gets us in right relationship with God. All right, this next verse is, is, is really important. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brother. So now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. So fear has led to obedience, which has led to purification. Now you have sincere love for your brothers. And then the command, love one another deeply from the heart. What a better picture of life than the, the vain pursuits in Ecclesiastes. For fear to lead to obedience, obedience to lead to a greater experience of love with the Father, and then to take that love and outpour it to your brothers and sisters. That's beautiful. It makes me think of um, 1 John Chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's real tension between this verse and what we just read in 1 Peter. But it makes sense through this framework of fear starts the process so that love can be made full. And when we have that confidence, that hope that is a confident expectation of our salvation, then there is no fear of judgment. We know we're in right relationship with God because of his love for us. Love led to fear, and then fear can lead back to love. There's a really good... So in, in studying this topic and the central question of how does it make sense to fear a loving God, there was this article that kept being referred to in everything that I was reading. And it's an article from Christianity Today in 1986 written by a guy named William Eisenhower. It's fantastic. I, I commend it to you. But I want to read this one quote because it's so good on this point. Yet if wisdom starts with fear, right? Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If wisdom starts with fear, it does not end there. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. That he stands over against my delusions, but not against the truth that sets me free. That he casts me down, but only to lift me up. That he sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love is its completion. Fear leads to obedience, which leads to a greater experience of love with the Father, which leads to a greater experience of love amongst all of us. All right, finishing out quickly here. So, 23 through 25. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. So we're, our lives are like 
withering grass or dying flowers. I think there's an even greater and more clear expression of this. It's really all over scripture, but in Psalm 39, starting in verse four, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Again, this is a hard verse. Why would a loving God remind us of our mortality, remind us how short our life is, essentially say you're going to die and you're going to die sooner than you think? Because again, this isn't our home. The next life is our home. We're strangers here. We're sojourners. The next life, we will be fully known, and we will be in God's presence forever. And we have to live in light of that. Everything from the existential fear of damnation to God's blessed us with this life, and we only get it for such a short period of time. How are we going to live in his will and love? All right, there are, I think the best way to kind of close out, there's a lot of commands. These chapters are so dense, and I just want to real quickly tick through it, and then we'll be done. So the commands in this tiny part, right, just the second half of chapter one, be self-controlled, hope fully on the sufficiency of Christ's grace. Don't conform to the evil desires of this world. We're strangers, we're sojourners. Be holy in all you do. Be set apart. Be different. Live with reverent fear. Love one another deeply from the heart. That gift of grace that we can't earn, that we can't demand, it's been given freely and we need to give it freely. All right, we're going to bring Bo up for some ministry time and if the ministry groups would come up as well. I think there's three things that struck me in this passage, as David always says, come up for prayer for anything. If God's tugging on your heart, come. Come and receive prayer. But three things that you may consider that are relevant to the passage we studied today. That idea of loving one another deeply. Are you in wrong relationship with a brother and sister? Or do you just have a hard time loving someone in your life you know you need to love? Come, get prayer. That empty way of life that we described about pursuing the things that are only going to lead to our destruction, to pain and suffering, to meaninglessness. If you feel like that swallowed you whole, come, receive prayer. And then there's this undeniable aspect of God's judgment and the fear of it. If there's someone who you want to pray for for their salvation, come and let us pray with you about that person. Let me pray now. Father God, thank you for this morning, for your blessings. Help us not to take for granted the way you bless our church financially and to realize that it's you moving in each of us to give generously and regularly and even sacrificially, Lord. Thank you. You get the glory for that because it's your stirring our hearts to do that. Thank you for your word and the richness of it, the complexity of it, the challenge in it. Help us to dig in 
and know you better from it. Help us to be obedient, Lord, and experience greater and fuller love from that. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 